All right, everyone, let's go ahead and stand up together. Good morning. It's good to see your masked faces. You join us from home. Welcome to church this morning. We're going to sing God's praises together. Before we do that, let's start by hearing God call us to worship and just putting our mind on him as we hear his word. We listen to Psalm 62, starting in verse 7. It says this, On God rests my salvation and my glory. My mighty rock, my refuge is God. Trust in him at all times, O people. Pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us. Amen. Let's sing this together.
Come and stand before your maker Full of wonder, full of fear Behold his power and glory Yet with confidence strong near For the one who holds the heavens And commands the stars above Is the God who bends to bless us With an unrelenting love
Your loving kindness never changes. Because of that, Lord, even when times are good and when times are bad, we have communion with you by the power of your spirit and by the finished work of your son, Jesus Christ. It is finished. And so we step here today from the knowledge of what we deserve and the fact that you give us eternal life instead. Eternal life. And even when we mess up, when we fall short, your mercies are new every morning.
us in you, Jesus. No power of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck us from his hand, those of us in Christ. What great news that is for us. It's not news to many of us, but it's something that we get to celebrate over and over again as we gather as his church to celebrate the finished work of Jesus. And not only the finished work, but the work that he continues to do on our behalf before the Father, interceding for us, upholding us, giving power and strength to us to pursue life, to continue on, to endure. It's because we'll never be plucked from his hand. So Jesus, receive our worship. Oh God the Father, receive our worship. Spirit of God, come, help us to see Christ more clearly. Give us power to to live this life on this earth for your glory and because we have hope in your name. And it's in this name that we pray. Amen. Amen and amen. Thank you, worship team. Thank you, dynamic duo of Keith and Crystal Gonzalez. Joy to get to have you guys lead us in worship this morning. Well, good morning, folks. Uh, welcome to those here. Welcome to those watching uh, through our stream. My name is Ronald. I'm one of the pastors here uh, at Lakeview. If you if you happen to be a first-time guest with us, uh, maybe been around a couple of weeks, and you have not had a chance to receive a welcome gift from us, we would love to put something in your hands as a thank you for coming and being a part of our worship service. On your way out, go ahead and pick up a, a, a welcome gift on the Welcome Center. And it's just a way of us to show you guys that we're, we're just grateful for your attendance, grateful for you uh, to join us in the, in, in the season of social distancing. You, you've chosen to not uh, uh, distance yourself from the activity of God in church, and you've come to this new place and have been a part, have be joined to be a part of us as a church. So if you're new, if you're new with us, please pick up a gift um, at the Welcome Center. I want to read to you a passage in Ephesians chapter 6 that the Apostle Paul writes to this church in, he, in which he says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. We have been eagerly pursuing the spiritual gifts as a result of the content of the sermons in 1 Corinthians 12 through 14. And these past few weeks, we've, we've just, just welcomed what the Lord has, um, not just in teaching on the spiritual gifts, but of experiencing them in our midst. And if you were here this past Wednesday for our prayer, prayer gathering, you, you were a part of that. I'm hoping that you saw what, what, what it means for a church to eagerly desire and pursue the spiritual gifts. But the same writer who wrote to the Corinthians eagerly desire the spiritual gifts writes to this church to also eagerly pursue something. And in this case, he's, he's encouraging them. He's admonishing them eagerly pursue unity, eagerness in the pursuit of unity. And, and unity is reflected not just in, 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 in the moment that we come to believe the same thing. So we are unified in some sense when we agree on definitions and we agree on doctrine. There's certainly a level of unity that's expressed there. But, but that's not the totality of unity. 
Unity also expresses itself in the pursuit. When we walk together in pursuing those things, we want to believe. Here's what I mean. You and I can come to believe and agree that Jesus Christ is Lord. And that will display a level of unity. That will manifest a level of unity that you and I have. But that's not when, that's, we don't abandon unity then. Because there's another dynamic that takes place. I might look at your life and say, well, you and I may agree that Jesus is Lord, but he seems to be more Lord of me than of you. Uh, he seems to be doing things in my life and not doing things in your life. So whether you and I agree on this the- theoretical abstract thing, uh, we disagree on how that's played out. And in those moments, sometimes disunity tends to show up. So eagerly maintaining the bond of peace, eagerly pursuing unity leads us not merely to walk towards each other and try and understand, hey, what do you believe about this? But it leads us to walk with each other as we seek to find not just common ground in doctrine, but a a welcome life and the experience of that doctrine. We walk with each other, alongside each other, in humility and in gentleness, seeking to understand before we correct. Seeking to bear something, and that bearing of something is an experience of closeness, before we respond with opposition and default to creating space and distance. Now, lest you think I have forgotten that this is a segment of tithes and offering, and what does that have to do with with unity? Well, actually a lot. Did you know that one of the ways we demonstrate our eagerness in the pursuit of unity is in fact by giving of tithes and offerings? How so? When we give in tithe, we walk in a manner worthy of our call by affirming that, in spite of the potential differences of thought and experience we might bring into this place, we are committing to pursue God's call for his church together. That's the statement that giving and tithing is making. We are pursuing, we are committing ourselves, not just in mind, but in action, to pursue something continuously together. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for what you have done in our lives. Lord, you have saved us through Christ. You have picked up every ounce of sin and every guilt associated with that sin and every just punishment that that sin accrued, and you have placed that on Christ. Thank you, Lord, for salvation. But Lord, thank you for what salvation calls us to. It calls us to live a life in community. It calls us to live a life with other people who have that shared experience of receiving an unmerited forgiveness, of receiving an undeserved grace, Lord, of kneeling at the cross and being able to see that the people around us are at the same level. We are unworthy sinners receiving the grace of a worthy God. Father, so compel us, I pray. Fill us, I pray, to recognize that the differences in backgrounds we may have, the differences in ethnicity we may have, the differences in thoughts and opinions and experiences and social strata dimensions, Lord, as many as those differences may be, Lord, there is one massive 
massive point of unity. There is one commonality that we share, Lord, that overshadows and overwhelms all those differences. And that is that your son has died for our sake, unifying us as one people for one purpose for your glory. So, Father, help us give freely and joyfully with that in our eyes. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So church, as you are here, if you'd like to give here, um, we've got offering boxes in the back. You could do so right now or at the end of the worship service. Uh, And for those of you guys watching, there's a number of digital ways that you could go about uh, giving. I've got a couple of announcements for you guys. And, um, you know, it seems like 2020 has certainly been the year of abnormality. So any, any attempt, any, anything that begins to return normalcy, uh, that, that be, be, begins to fall under the category of routine, of, of recognizing, yeah, we used to do that. That's great. Um, it's, it's a welcome thing. I don't know about you, but it's been a welcome thing for me to see some of those normal things of life return. And we've got a couple of normal things that are part of the life of Lakeview returning. You've heard uh, uh, from Frank last week that Alpha has come back and we are in fact having alpha return and this will be a unique alpha for us but it presents you with a unique opportunity to do something in your home with this alpha so we are asking you guys september 29th it's tuesday the the last tuesday of this month alpha will go online and we are encouraging you guys to to make it a thing like to to make this a, a a a dinner and a movie type thing with friends, with family members, invite them to your home to watch the Alpha stream as it's going on and and extend the reach of Alpha. We might be limited in attendance up there in room 200, but we are not limited in your ability to influence those around you. So let me encourage you guys to to, to pray through whom whom would God put in my mind uh, to invite to my home September 29th to, to have a sit down and say, hey, let's watch something together. Let's watch this alpha thing that's been a meaningful aspect of my life. Uh, And speaking again of things that return to normal, that that, that make church feel normal and good, there's probably no more normal thing on any given Sunday morning for the past, Keith, I don't know how long, man, than school of the word. And it's been abnormal that we haven't had school of the word in months, but starting this coming Sunday, the return of Mr. Glory Spout himself, Pastor Peter Davidson, resumes the teaching pulpit of School of the Word. So this coming Sunday at 8 a.m. upstairs in room 200, if you've been salivating and thirsting and, and hungrily waiting for the moment where School of the Word would return, your prayers have been answered. So hopefully you guys can join us in that venture and then a couple of announcements in terms of family dynamics of the church. Um, um, the, the, before I put these, these ideas together, uh, before the idea of unity came to mind, this is how the spirit works. I had no idea that I was going to get this request uh, by a brother. So God has, has brought unity through diversity in the life of Lakeview. We, we've had a, a, a growth in, in welcoming people into, the par, into our church from different parts of the world. Uh, there's people from the Latin community like, like myself. There's people from, from China. There's people from other parts of the world. We've got a contingent of, uh, of folks from Nigeria. But there is one couple uh, who are um, actually from Ghana. I think I said he was from Nigeria um, in the first service. But a brother and sister who come to this church who are from Ghana that are married and are expecting their first child. This is Daniel and Rhoda. 
Daniel, I'm sorry I got it wrong, man. Uh, my, my apologies. Uh, but uh, pray for them, church. And, and in the baby dimension, uh, there's another couple uh, who are members of this church, um, whom uh, husband and wife, the husband happens to be my younger brother, uh, Luis Alejandro and his wife, Michelle. Uh, I got a text about 30 minutes ago that she's actually in labor right now. So um, they would be just excited to know that the church is praying for them and thinking through them. This is also their first uh, child. Having said all that, Pastor Keith, would you give us the word, man? Thank you, Ronald. Ronald, Ronald felt like he had extra announcement anointing or something going on. I, th I thought any moment you were going to go, let's get ready to rumble. <laughs> uh, well, good morning. Great to see everybody who is here and taking in faces and friends and so good to have you gathered. You guys are at home. We miss you and can't wait to be together sometime soon. Uh, while you're turning to 1 Corinthians 14, let me just echo what you've heard. I think Ronald mentioned uh, just what a wonderful gathering we had on Wednesday night uh, as we gathered for prayer. If you weren't able to be with us or you weren't aware, we just felt like the Lord was calling us to a special time of prayer on Wednesday night. We're going to do that again. Uh, we'll let you know that in the next couple of weeks when we're going to schedule our next time to be together in prayer as a local church, just, just sensing that role that we're called to play and to wait in the presence of God for his purposes in these moments, in these days. But God met with us. It was a wonderful, wonderful time. Um, I've probably been jealous for this to happen for a long, long time, but there were more people in that meeting than there are in this meeting, right? So for a prayer meeting to outdo a Sunday morning meeting is rare air for a church, <laughs> but God's doing something in our midst. I mean, there are people that were here whose hearts were full of faith. They were here because God is sending a signal to our hearts. He's doing something right now among us. And so thank you for those of you who could be here and, and looking forward to have more of you join us in the future. All right, well, we're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, and we are picking up where Paul has been uh, taking quite a bit of time to go through spiritual gifts and seeking to, to gather the church in ways that are going to strengthen the church, in ways that are going to bolster faith. Right, so as we've stared at this, it just it gives me again a jealousy for, hey, what are we doing here this morning? What are we doing here on Wednesday night? What, what's the outcome of this supposed to be? It's not just some intellectual exercise. Right? We're not here just to entertain some thoughts. This isn't a motivational moment where we're, we're trying to give some motivational speech that, that we just pull ourselves up by our bootstraps kind of a thing. Uh, we're here to experience the Holy Spirit's ability to build us up for faith to get enlarged and to find strength in our soul. So all that we do when we come together, Paul was trying to steer and direct the church that when you come together and these spiritual gifts operate, let it be done orderly. And, he, and he's going to bring this next thought to bear on that order. So in verse 33, 1 Corinthians 14, let's read. Paul says, for God is not a God of confusion, but of peace, as in all the churches of the saints. The women should keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission, as the law also 
says. If there's anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. And then he's going to close out this section with some thought. All right. Uh, I'm going I'm to take some extra time in this passage for reasons that I think many of us would agree are, are necessary. Right? I titled the message, The Silencing of Women in Church? Question mark? Part one. Um, so here's what's happening whenever you and I read the Bible. Whenever we listen to a message. There's an exchange that's taking place. The Bible is saying something. And we are hearing something. How many of you guys are humble enough to recognize those don't always connect? Right, sometimes what we hear is so influenced by what we bring to that moment that whatever the Bible is saying, we tend to make it say what it sounds like it's supposed to be saying rather than what it is actually saying. Right? And this is just a reality. So this verse, this verse comes with some challenge. It comes with a little bit of baggage, if you will. I'll, I'll liken it to this. Uh, in my backyard, which since COVID, I've spent more and more time just studying on the back porch. So I just sit on the back porch. I'm grateful for some better weather, by the way. Um, but behind the fence of my house is, is a, a drainage ditch. Right? I'd like to actually call it a creek. If I lived in the country, it'd be a creek, right? But where I live, it's a ditch. Um, on any given day, if you decided to just walk across that ditch, uh, you know, it's, it's not that, that far across the bottom of it. Uh, you, you know, the bottom of your feet might get wet a little bit. If you slipped off of a rock, the top of your foot might get wet. But then there are seasons when it rains like it does in South Louisiana. And we can get just inches and inches and inches and inches of rain that all find its way into that stream. Now, in that moment, if you decide to put your foot in that thing, it would drown you. Uh, it becomes a raging river. Uh, and I know that most of the ditches around here don't do this. For some reason, the elevation in my neighborhood, the water moves incredibly fast. And so it looks like something out of the Colorado River, some whitewater rapids events. And if you stepped into that, it would sweep you away, right? right well, for some of us, the topic of women and men and differentiation and the roles of women and the roles of men and what's okay, what's not okay, what's out of bounds, what should never be done. Should we even be talking about this subject? This can be a really sensitive subject, right? And at different points in history, if you just picked up this passage and read it, at some points in some settings, it would have been like crossing that ditch with this much water in it. That's not today. Right. Today, so much rain has fallen in this category, on this subject, that has found its way into our creek, that if you put your foot in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 33, and thereafter it, that rain could sweep you away. Right? So I want us to be aware as we interact, and that's why we're going to take a little extra time with this subject. Uh, how animated are you over this topic? I just kind of take a quick look on the inside here. Maybe you read the title this morning. Maybe you're at home and you read the title and you said, I ain't coming to church today. <laughs> uh, there are some, some issues today that have gotten a lot of rain, if you will. And I'm not saying that critically. It's just, just where we're living in time. Um, the issues of race. There's a lot of rain in that stream right now. You're not going to cross there easily. 
the issue of distinctions between men and women. A lot of rain in that category right now. So uh, all of us would probably be on some continuum, I'd say, between uh, this topic animates us either uh, not enough or way at the other end, too much. All right, so can you kind of try to find yourself on this spectrum? Women, their roles, their issues, men, differentiation, not enough animation or too much. I'd say not enough for some because legitimately in a fallen world, there are, there are real issues in this category that affect real people in real ways that we should care about. Too much because this subject and topic gets informed by the way other people see it, by the way other people feel about it and the rhetoric that goes on in presenting it. That can, that can shift us to a place where this subject sits out of size and proportion with other subjects. And it becomes a defining subject for us. Right, so somewhere in between there, all of us find ourselves on one end or the other. But, but let me turn our, our, our hearts toward this subject uh, in one particular way as we start. You know, the rain that's falling in the land of this subject right now... Uh, would find many expressions of things that need to get talked about, need to get worked through, need to be better understood, right? And I've written a lot of notes for you today. If you look in your outline there in your app or wherever you're looking at, um, I've tried to write a lot of stuff down to keep me from saying too much. Um, I'm going to try and read more and be a little more narrow just because there's a lot to cover here. All right, so I put this thought in. The mistreatment of women by men with power is a real topic that needs real attention, right? If, if I love God's purpose for women, then there are, are activities that have surfaced in our world that have that always have been happening, but now they're being talked about, right? The hashtag Me Too movement was a moment where women felt like I can talk about what happened to me. I can speak about the way I was treated, the inappropriateness of how I was made to feel about things that were said to me, the control and the out-of-boundness of people in my life, men in my life. Right, so when we stare at those things and we love God's purpose for women, uh, I, I can't feel okay about that treatment. And... I don't have a problem that it's being highlighted, that it's being addressed in our day. Don't always like the way the world addresses issues, but you know, I have low expectations for how the world does a lot of things. But the fact that these things are being addressed, uh, for me as a pastor who just cares about God's purpose in this world, for me as a man who has four particular people that I'm extremely fond of in my life, and that would be my wife and three daughters, uh, I'm not interested in any woman, especially the girls in my life, experiencing what this world has been dishing out to women in these categories. So I think to some degree, we want to hear some of these things through an awareness of how broken some of these aspects of life are. It's, is it possible? Right, let me ask this question. Is it possible that male strength and male power has resulted in male dominance and male oppression? 
Is it possible that male-dominated traditions have written scripts for women that are not a reflection of God's design, but rather a reflection of a segment of society, men? Now, listen, this is an interesting thing to even bring up and touch on right now because there's a lot of similarities between racial issues that sit just like this. Is it possible that one segment of a society has inappropriately related to another segment, has misused power in other people's lives? Is that possible in our culture? Um, All right, so before anybody gets defensive in that category, can we go back to Genesis and visit the Garden of Eden and answer that question? Is it possible that individual human beings could set their own interest above other human beings and make decisions that benefit themselves and use the power that they have at the expense of others? And you stare at Adam and Eve for how long before you figure out the answer to that? How many of Adam and Eve's children were Adam and Eve thinking about when they chose the tree over submission to God? Adam wasn't thinking about his wife in that moment or his children or you or me. What was in the heart in that moment was an opportunity for me. That's all I see. It's an opportunity for me here. Humbly, Welcome to the broken human heart. That's in every one of us. See, that's what makes me cry out for a savior. That's what makes me aware. Left to myself, my interest will shove your interest to the edge of the universe. And if I'm a man, I'll do it to a woman. If I'm white, I'll do it to black. If I've got wealth and influence, I'll do it to those who don't. So... In some way, we stare out the world. We're not surprised that these issues are here. They have been in the human heart from the beginning. But they create real issues. And they travel down through generations. Right? Cain kills Abel. Out of self-interest. Cain's world is not feeling right to him. It's upside down feeling. His countenance has fallen. The Bible informs him. Cain, what's going on, man? Don't you know sin is crouching at the door and its desire is for you? Well, sin crouches at the door for each and every one of us. And when Cain goes to fix whatever it is that's messing him up, he kills Abel in order to accomplish that. So so there's a reality at work here, right? There's a reality that many women here today could be identifying experiences that they've had at the hands of men that have been inappropriate and out of bounds and have hurt and caused hurt in their lives. And they should hear the church seeing this issue through the lens of God and and not seeing it through some social media lens, by the way. So if we're going to pick up this issue, we're, we're touching on an issue that's sensitive for a variety of reasons in people's lives, but it is there. This is, this is one of the things that expository preaching does for you. It takes you to the next verse. And the next verse happens to be about women being silent in the church. I didn't write that. I didn't get on the phone with Paul and say, Paul, when you're done talking about spiritual gifts, how about you tell women to be quiet? Why don't you do that next? All right, so I'm not writing this. In this day and age, quite honestly, this would not be my subject of choice to talk about right now. 
But here it is, and it's God's inspired word, so we can't ignore it, and, and we shouldn't feel like we are supposed to ignore it. But I will say this. Given the amount of rain that has fallen in this category and has filled our whitewater rapid ditches in this moment, uh, we need some other information from the Bible before we can even interact with this passage. So in typical Keith fashion, I'm going to pull in other dimensions beyond 1 Corinthians 14 into this moment because we need them. Right? We need what the Bible says to see something about what is in this passage and to benefit from it, right? So here's where I'm going to start today. And so this is, this is why this is part one. Um, all right, so from outside, I'm going, to, I'm going to install some thoughts on authority, some biblical thoughts on how do we see authority that exists in our world. So here's my premise. I don't believe, and this is written in your outline if you want to go back and read it later, I don't believe one can interact with this passage without interacting with the biblical presentation of order and authority. If this passage is interacting with male-female distinctions, where'd the concept of male-female come from in the first place? And how should it inform our understandings of life and roles and relations? All right, so my question for this next section is, does the world that you and I are seeking to navigate, does it answer to randomness or to some kind of order? Now, here's what I mean by those two choices. I'm just unpack randomness for a second and order, right? By way of randomness, if my explanation of the universe, how everything exists, is the big bang followed by time plus chance plus unguided processes, then randomness will pervade my understandings of human life, which means I don't make a big deal out of original intent or was there some master plan for human existence? No, no, no. I, I'm... I'm tracing back our history into some random activities that took place in the beginnings of the universe that were followed by more random events. So nothing really has a rhyme and a reason to it. It's all just sort of happening and playing out randomly. Stephen Meyer wrote a book a number of years ago called The Signature in the Cell, where he traced out uh, the divine origins, if you will, the intelligent design of our universe. But he highlights alternatives to seeing it that way. He says, as Stephen Gould, who's a Harvard paleontologist, explained elsewhere, before Darwin, we thought that a benevolent God had created us. But after Darwin, biology took away our status as paragons created in the image of God. As Kenneth Miller and Joseph Levine explained in the fourth edition of their popular textbook, Biology, I'm pretty sure one of my kids had this book, Biology, uh, in, in, at UNO, I remember just thumbing through it. I remember it, it capturing my attention that, you know, when I started biology, you started, you know, with, you know, amoebas and small things and blah, blah, blah. This book starts with explaining evolution. It starts laying that groundwork for everything we're going to say is going to explain to you evolutionary. All right. So this book says the evolutionary process is random and undirected and occurs without plan or purpose. Or as Purvis, Orians, and Heller in their textbook, they write, 
The living world is constantly evolving without any goals. Evolutionary change is not directed, right? So it's never supposed to go anywhere. It just goes. One other textbook puts it this way. By coupling undirected, purposeless variation to the blind, uncaring process of natural selection, Darwin made theological or spiritual explanations of the life process superfluous. So how you function, how you exist, what you're made of, and then the big question, what are you supposed to do with all that? If our background is this, if we are just the product of random events in our past that never had an agenda, never had a purpose, they're undirected, they're just one accident after another, then our life doesn't answer to anything, right? I wrote this out, a random process took us from nothing, right? Which is the most unscientific statement that's ever been made. Science cannot observe nothing, nor can it then explain the next step that something suddenly came from nothing, right? So we're unscientific in that moment, but a random process took us from nothing to scattered quarks, atoms, and molecules that accidentally collided and formed groups. These groups randomly became inorganic and organic in their nature. They randomly proceeded to more advanced life forms that mutated into male and female that shared a strange accidental ability to come together and reproduce. Over time, patterns developed and humans affixed labels to these relationships and practices. Boy, girl, brother, sister, husband, wife, father, mother, something called marriage, family, right and wrong. But are these patterns and labels authoritative? If the origin of our life and our universe is random chance and impersonal elements of physics and chemistry, there can't be anything called authority in our world. Only tradition. What's always been done what the latest people have done, what the majority does. And when you impose one group's traditions on others to control them, that's more like authoritarianism. Today, these labels are being challenged and cast off and revolted against. Gender, marriage, family are all being vigilantly protested. Universities, high schools, younger schools, are removing these absolute and imposed labels. You are asked what personal pronoun you prefer and how you identify with regards to gender. Parents are being encouraged to not impose a gender identity on their children, but to let them discover their gender identity. This protest and delabeling is appropriate if we are the product of random history, legitimately, why should I be forced to live under someone else's traditions and prescribed labels and expectations? Ours is a day of casting off traditional values, imposed expectations, 
because ours is a radically secular age that associates its origins with randomness. So, do your ideas about male and female, roles and behaviors and definitions answer to anything? Or are they simply the product of a random and undirected process without plan or purpose? Right, so that's massively important to discover, you know, how do I understand the nature of this topic before I even begin to try and have a conversation about it? Now, today, I want to interact a good bit with, with traditions for a moment, because I think that needs to be seen clearly. So let me issue this warning before I exit randomness here. Uh, we need to be mindful and aware and careful as to whether we are treating as law our ideas that exist, well, because I'm just old-fashioned. Or I guess I'm just more traditional. Right, if my views about what defines something and what makes it appropriate and inappropriate are simply a matter of my personal preferences and traditions, I don't have any business imposing that on anybody. That's not how the Bible's written, and that's not how we're called to interact with issues. Right, so be careful and be wise. Right? We'll explore that more in just a second. All right, so there's randomness as a possibility. How about order? What if order describes the world that we live in? If my explanation of the universe is that an intelligent being created everything that exists, and he injected design and intentionality, and he had a plan and a purpose for all of creation to fulfill, then order will pervade my understanding of human life and existence. Labels that reflect his design are legit and meaningful and necessary. Boundaries that define acceptable and unacceptable behavior make sense because they answer to his original plan and Design, boy, girl, husband, wife, father, mother, marriage, family, these now all have meaningful definitions because they answer to no one's traditions or ideas or preferences. They answer to the creator. Listen, it's okay for us to call into question traditions, ways of doing things that are the product of the latest thinking that's gonna get solidified that will become a tradition for future generations, which is some of us what we've inherited, right? Somebody created some traditions and then down through the generations they became familiar and then suddenly we just think that's normal. And today, by the way, some new traditions are being created. They're just not called traditions yet because they haven't been around long enough. Right now they're called trends. But they're just human ideas that are seeking an audience that when enough people buy into them, then they can become traditions and can get handed down. But how do those ideas interact with God's ideas? Right. So I'm gonna give us some insights here. Jesus interacted with an audience in Matthew chapter 15. And he's going he's gonna to install two places for you to put the ideas that you're interacting with in life. One of them is going to be traditions, and the other one is going to be God's authority. They're not exactly the same, and they shouldn't be treated the same way. And, God, and Jesus won't treat them the same way. 
So Matthew 15, verse 1, says this. Then Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat. All right, now you just showed up to have a conversation with a guy who raises people from the dead, casts out demons, does incredible stuff. This is your question? Really? Apparently, because hand washing is a major deal to get right. Don't you know? Well, I'm not going to go into the history of all these comments that are here. But, you know, you would have had some, some polluting Old Testament ideas with some human ideas, which is usually how you create your traditions. So the idea that there was ceremonial cleanliness associated with the priesthood could then just get picked up by Pharisees who were making sure everybody was abiding by the rules all the time. That's what the Pharisees were specialists in. To make sure nobody gets out of bounds here. So if the priests should wash their hands, then everybody should wash their hands. And over time, they just got traction. And next thing you know, everybody better wash their hands. And it just became this meaningless ceremonial thing that you did. Quite honestly, the way in which it was practiced, there was a, a word that was used that was associated with this practice that described how much water needed to be used. It wasn't enough water to wash your hands. So this isn't about being tidy and hygienic. It's about following a ceremony. And oh my gosh, this, this is so important. When we get a chance to talk to Jesus, we're going to take this up with him. You don't want to ask how I raised that dead dude? You don't want to ask that question? No. Do you, you see how these things can sit in us? Right. Be aware, you've got some hand-washing issues inside of you. That if somebody ever does something different in the church or in this world, you're going to freak out and you're going to want to talk to the pastor or somebody about this because, oh my gosh, this is so important. Uh, okay, that's really not that important, but okay, have at it. Verse three, he answered them. I love when Jesus does this. He answers your question with a question. How annoying, right? He answered them, well, why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? For God commanded, honor your father and your mother. Now, Jesus is going to change the subject here. This is no longer about hand washing. It's about how you manage traditions and the commands of God now. Because that's the real issue for these guys. God commanded, honor your father and your mother. And whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. I like that. But you say, if anyone tells his father or his mother, what you would have gained from me is, is given to God. He need not honor his father. So for the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God. You have taken God's authority and so de-emphasized that you have pushed it to the side and you have taken your traditions and made sure everybody knows that and follows that. That's what you've done here. Now, just to understand the passage, what Jesus picked on was a practice. It was called Corban Laws. And it was the practice, it was almost like a way to escape personal responsibility for your parents. Right? So there was an understood dimension that, you know, your mother and your father were in your life and you were to honor them and you would walk with them. And they, would, they could have needs in their life later on. And there was an expectation that you would make room as a child to meet those needs. But then there was this little Corban law that you could take all of your assets and devote them to God. It didn't mean you actually gave them to God. It was kind of like leaving them to God in your will. And so to make sure God got 
what you promised him, you couldn't spend any of that on your parents. Oh, but you could spend it on you. You could retain the rights to it. And there actually was a tradition that got created that was causing these people to dishonor their parents and not step in and meet their needs. But notice something very important that Jesus interacts with in this passage. He identifies that there are traditions of men that will be so powerful to you that you will remain loyal to them. You will be very animated over these traditions. But there's this other category called the commands of God. That's different than human ideas and opinions. In the commands of God, briefly right here, you know, in the past, this would not have been an issue. But today, in, in the commands of God, there are mothers and fathers in this passage. That's not a negotiable. There aren't mothers and mothers. There aren't interchangeable mothers and fathers. There are mothers and fathers, and there is honoring. None of that's negotiable, right? That is God's order. He created a world with order in it. And he's not interested in that being pushed aside. But be careful, because for us, interacting with this topic means interacting with traditions as well as with God's order. Jesus did a lot of stuff that got underneath people's skin. Jesus interacted with people's traditions in a way that was intended to sideswipe it. It was Jesus' way of highlighting, where'd you get the idea to do that that way? That didn't come from me. You remember the scandalous things that Jesus did? They were scandalous because of the way people interacted when they watched him do it. He eats with tax gatherers and sinners. Right, you hear Jesus is coming to town, you hear the rumor and the buzz and you talk. What do you talk about? These incredible, clear, amazing things Jesus says, no, no, no. He eats with tax gatherers and sinners. There's no way he's the Messiah. There's no way he's the Holy One. Why? Is there something wrong with eating with tax gatherers and sinners? Uh, yeah, Keith. Really? Where's the Bible verse on that exactly? But the shock gives away the sense of how accepted that was. That's how people felt. And Jesus was out of bounds. You and I have grown up hearing the presentation of the Good Samaritan. The Good Samaritan, right? It's a story about somebody down and out and in need and, and how we should make room and sacrifice and engage that person's need and step in. That's the Good Samaritan. If, if you don't understand that there is an ethnic hostility between Jews and Samaritans and Jews hate Samaritans and Samaritans hate Jews. And for Jesus to stand in a group of Jews and make the good Samaritan the hero. You understand how offensive this was to them? Not only that, he makes it worse. He makes the Jews the people who pass by and don't care. Now you don't get that unless you get the traditions of that moment. Where Jesus, in the face of people, says, uh, that's the good guy here. We looked at the passage last week or maybe two weeks ago of Jesus interacting with the woman at the well. Remember that word that he has for that woman at the well? You know, if you read the whole story, there's a moment in which Jesus is alone with this woman. And he's having a conversation with her. And his disciples come back. His disciples, right? These guys have been following Jesus. And the Bible says, and they marveled that he was speaking to a woman. Go back and read it. They marveled? Really? They, they, 
pulled each other aside and we're like, what's he doing? He's talking to a woman. (laughs) Is that a problem? Apparently so. (laughs) Apparently that's that's a problem. Because of the way traditions taught people to see men and women. That's a problem. You don't do that, Jesus. You're confusing everybody. Nobody can think you're this holy, righteous man when you break these traditions. That's what they are. They're traditions of men. And Jesus didn't mind interacting with them and uprooting them, right? Put in your outline there. Jesus spent a lot of time protesting the traditions of men. But make sure you observe the whole story. Jesus wasn't a hippie trying to empower the oppressed or to validate individualism. His passion was that these human traditions were displacing the authority of God. Now see the full picture here. I think there was a heart in Jesus that couldn't stand the fact that that Samaritan woman was there in the middle of the day avoiding everybody else living in the shame of them looking down their nose at her. So when Jesus goes and speaks to her, I think there's a massive flood of compassion and he's not going to treat her the way everybody else does. He's not signing on for that kind of behavior. I'm going to love this person right where they are. They are precious to me. And when Jesus rips into these Pharisees about their practice, his passion is that the order of God has been displaced for you to replace it with something else that you're more passionate about. Which is the same reason why the disciples, when they showed up, would not have spoken to that woman. Because God's order never should have created something that made it feel like you can't speak to that woman. You can't treat her a certain way. You can't grant her respect and dignity. You can't do that. Because whatever in your culture won't allow it, you can't do that. God's order never would have created that. And so Jesus has got a passion here, not just for a cause to lift the down and out person to a better station in life. Don't ever misplace the reality that Jesus is here to represent the glory of God. And his jealousy is about what is my father wanting this to contain in it? And when he notices the issue in these Pharisees' lives and these people who put traditions in too high a place, it's God's purpose that's been shoved aside. That's what he is jealous about. In your outline I wrote, remember if our authority is not located in God, then every opinion and viewpoint is simply someone's tradition. So all the latest trending views on human identity and behavior is just a current tradition that is seeking to be embraced by some and then imposed on others. The real problem isn't the clash of opinions or views. It's whether or not these views have any true authority to them. Now listen, Jesus didn't mind calling into question human traditions. But Jesus was not okay for creatures to call into question the order of God. He's not okay with that. That's above our pay grade. 
You and I want to question each other and whether or not we're getting it right. That's one thing. But when creatures turn to the creator and say, I don't think you're getting this right. I don't think you knew what you were doing. That's not okay. Right? That's not a good question for us. Romans chapter 9, verse 16, clarifies something here that's very important. Paul says, so then, it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy, right? This is going to place God at the center of the storyline of humanity, that God is the one who's the mover and shaker. And this is what Paul's trying to clarify. He says, for the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose, I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. So there's this player who comes on the stage of God's storyline named Pharaoh. And God assigns Pharaoh a part to play in his ordered universe. And Pharaoh's going to play that part. Now, before you want to take up for Pharaoh, Pharaoh's more than happy to play the part, by the way. Pharaoh doesn't mind being the most powerful human being in the world and he doesn't mind having his army run over you. Because he wants what you have. And he's more than happy to cooperate with this part. Because he's corrupt in his own heart. But God decides Pharaoh has a purpose to do this in my plan. Well, then you will say to me then, well, why, does he, why does God find fault, right? For who can resist his will? Obviously, Pharaoh's just doing whatever it is that God's ordained. And then Paul turns around and does something that is exactly what Jesus does. And I, quite honestly, I wish Paul would have taken a little bit more time to answer the question. <laughs> because we're all trying to figure out, so how is it that human sovereignty and uh, divine sovereignty and human will interact with each other? And this would have been a great moment for Paul to just fully give us insights on that, right? But instead, he does this. Let me ask you a question. Who are you, oh man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder? Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What's the point here? It's the declaration that God says there is a potter in this universe and then there's clay. I'm the potter and you're the clay. And I have chosen to make something out of your life. But you're the creature and I'm the creator. And it'll be really hard for you to ask me questions because you just don't know everything that I know. You can't see life from every angle that I can see it. You will always find yourself in a place where you stare into my activity and you go, sure you did that right, God? You sure that's the way you do that? And how does God, I mean, God's kind and patient all over the place when we're doing this with him, by the way. But we do need to hear God say, does the clay ask the potter? Why I did what I did? Do you, I mean, do you understand if I tell you that you're clay, then you lower your expectations that you'd understand my explanation if I gave it to you, right? You might not understand why I've done what I've done, but what's most important for you to know is I have done it. That's the most important thing for any of us to know. God created a universe with order 
and intentionality and design all over it. There's nothing about your life that God has not ordered and purposed and designed. Now, let that inform something that that I could celebrate by recognizing who is this God who's in my life that way? Well, he is a heavenly father who loves me in the most perfect of ways, who has designs and intentions and desires for me. He's the God who has given me taste buds and smell and eyes that see in color and a world full of variety of flavors and things to see and emotions to experience life. I am wired and built by God to experience an incredible world, right? Man is made on the last day. God has wired the whole world and then set man in it with mean intention, with cruel intention. No, he's a father who loves out of his heart. He produced humanity and he wired us in particular ways to experience joy unspeakable and full of glory, Peter described. Listen, don't don't ever lose sight of the reality that whatever design of God has touched your life, the, the intention of that God design is to bring fulfillment and joy into our lives, meaning and glory into our lives. That, that's the intention of it. Right, when Jesus sat with his disciples and he said, hey, now that you guys have gotten to know me, you pray like this. You pray in my name. You go to the Father in my name. To this point, you haven't asked anything in my name. But now, start asking in my name so that your joy may be full. Right? So don't lose sight of this reality. There is some kind of designed joy and purpose and meaning in you being a man or you being a woman. By God's design. Nobody finished second. Nobody gets the booby prize. It is a design of God that he intended for us to experience. So in your outline there I wrote, so if God created you to be male or female, to fulfill a life purpose as a man or a woman, as a husband or wife, whatever else, as an athlete, an architect, tall or short, Wouldn't we be better off living with a passion to fulfill his purpose rather than randomly wandering through life trying to invent our own purpose and fulfillment? What if what you or me or humanity invents as a substitute for God's purpose involves misery? and greed, and strife, and selfishness, and bondage, and Satan's control, and death, and judgment, rather than beauty, and wholeness, and health, and joy, and fulfillment. Are you sure you want something different than what God designed? Right, I'm have an engineering background, so the nerdy engineer part of me just travels through life with me. So if I stare out at the world that's been designed by people, my, my kids know I get freaked out if you open the cereal box wrong because that was designed a certain way and you didn't follow the design. That's why the rest of us now got to come behind you and clean the mess up. Different issue. But anyway, um, 
Right, you ever, you ever notice that there are these, these are marvels, these are engineering marvels. There are these, these high-speed trains in Europe and in Asia that travel at speeds of almost 300 miles an hour. Now, I'm not advising you to do this, but if you get in your car and you drive at 100 miles an hour and look down at the ground, you'll get a sense that, man, I'm going fast. All right, 300 miles an hour. This thing is traveling through the countryside. I'm trusting it's been well-designed because <laughs> that's a mess waiting to happen, isn't it? But it has been well-designed. It's been thought through every detail. But here's, a, here's an unspoken reality about that train. That train is designed to be a train. It does not work well as a car or as an airplane. Even though we might love airplanes and we might love cars. That train is designed to travel at 300 miles an hour in amazement on those tracks, restrained by those tracks, exactly where those tracks go, and they don't go where they don't go. That's not a bad thing. If you're okay and you bought tickets and you want to go where that train's going and you're on board with the train. But if you got some other desires, that becomes a little bit of a rub. But you know, the second that train leaves the track, it's a very short trip into that long description I just gave you of misery and greed and strife and bondage and destruction. Just get off track. God has a, a purpose and a plan that we have to give it some validity, right? We have to look at God's plan and say, you know what? That purpose and that plan has value. It's well thought out. There's a design in it that I want to make room for uh, and I want to receive it. Listen, I know that this is a challenge. You know, our, our, our life feels like the more freedom of choice that we have, the better it will be, right? I came across a thought from a, this guy wrote a book of describing 1950s Chicago. But I think it's very true today about just secular thinking that's around us. He said, most of us in America believe a few simple propositions that seem so clear and self-evident, they scarcely need to be said. Choice is a good thing in life. And the more of it we have, the happier we are. I'm not going to read any further just yet. How's it feeling so far? All right, I kind of like that. Authority is inherently suspect. Nobody should have the right to tell others what to think or how to behave. All right, then you got this guilt trip thing called sin. And he says, well, you know, sin isn't personal, it's social. Individual human beings are creatures of the society they live in. So there's something for us to think through in, in embracing something from God is we would rather have more choices than the ones that God gives us. And we don't like the idea that there's an authority outside of us that would impose a view on us. I get that if all that imposition is just your authority versus mine, your tradition versus mine. I'd rather have the choice. But if I stand before a God who is infinitely wise, limitless in his love, pursuant of me for my good, and he gives me an option, at that moment, I would be wise to surrender my choices and say, I can't think of a better choice than that one. The one that you are giving to me is the best one. 
And it is in your love and your kindness and your mercy that you would use your right authority as the creator to impose it on your creation. If God's way is the absolute best way of our lives and God treated it like, listen, I'm just saying one thing of a hundred. You guys just choose. That would be the most unloving thing that God would ever sound like. Because he would know that every choice outside of the one I'm giving you is like the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It's going to turn your world upside down, inside out, and you're going to crash and burn badly. And if he knows that, whatever choice you want, that's not an act of love. So this God does come to us and say, hey, I'm the creator and you're the creature. I have a plan that's existed for eternity and I'm going to bring it to you. And you and I can receive it by his grace and we can walk in it. I'm going to give you one last thought here and we're going to pray. So what might that grand plan be for us as human beings? Right? What's the plan that God's after us embracing and receiving? Right? Well, Colossians chapter 3, just give you three quick examples here. Colossians 3 is going to interact with our behavior for a moment, and then it's going to give us a fundamental reason as to why it interacted with our behavior this way. So here's the behavioral moment. Hey, dudes, put to death what's earthly in you. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these two you once walked when your train came off the rails. (laughs) But now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk from your mouth. Don't lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices. All right, so you just got God saying, hey, this is, this is what the human behavior world looks like underneath my order. Here's what it looks like. But here's why. You have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. That's what... God's agenda is for my life, every day of my life, is that I would be renewed into the image of my creator. No matter how marred sin has made it, no matter how much the fall has visited my world, God is at work renewing his image in me. Romans 8 says, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. That's God's great agenda. 2 Corinthians 3.18. We all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed right now. That's what's happening. Into the same image from one degree of glory to another. So so listen, no, no matter where today finds you, no matter what events are taking place in your life, some of them feel good, some of them feel scary, some of them feel hard. Some involve suffering. No matter what those experiences feel like, this is what God is doing behind the scenes of them. He is conforming us. He is restoring his image to us. We are image bearers of God. This is not a random universe that who knows where you're headed. Oh, no, no. no you are headed somewhere. You are headed into the imaging of the God who created this world. What an assignment! That's what I get to be? I don't know, you know, get something else more appealing than that? God, of all the things, oh, pick me. I, I want to image you. I mean, is there something? It's like, no, nah, no, nah, what else is on the list? 
And there's some other stuff that would be way cooler than that. (laughs) Really? No. Highest calling ever would be that. And this has always been God's plan. Eric, you can come back up wherever you are. We're not random. We're not just a series of molecules and interactions and chemistry and physics that randomly created men and women who then randomly relate through some kind of label on a relationship, husband and wife, father or mother. It's like, we're not random. That stuff's not up for grabs. It's got definitions because it was part of a destiny that God had for his creation to image him into this world. So all the way back in the beginning, right? If I'm Genesis 1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And then in verse 26, it says, Then God said, after he set the stage, created all this wonder and beauty in this world, he said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. So when we dial into 1 Corinthians chapter 14 and we hear that there's this distinction being made, there's some kind of a different comment being made about women versus about men in this passage. Where'd this idea that men and women would exist at all come from? What's the origins for anything that has to do with a world that has female in it and male in it? Well, I've got to start there because I've got to make sure when I create this conversation with 1 Corinthians 14, I don't decide to jettison the creator and only live in my own traditions and my own trends. So that when we talk about men and women, that's the only thing I know. Well, this is what my dad was like. So I just speak to my wife. That's all I know. You might want to read the Bible. (laughs) You might want to learn what God had to say about what your role is being partnered with a woman in your life and not just inherit some tradition. Well, there's all that pressure out there. I saw a social media post. Is that what's informing you about the view you're going to have on what is and what is not appropriate for a man or a woman? The next social media feed. And I'm not saying everything that's being said is wrong. I'm just saying that, that a lot of rain has fallen in that category. And you step into that ditch, it's going to sweep you away. You're going to need this to have a conversation with, what do I do with that passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 14? Well, next week, we'll see what we can do with it after we've learned this, right? Let's stand up together. Guys, remember, because we're going to make some, just some room just to pray. So I don't want you to dismiss yourself in your heart. I want you to invite the Holy Spirit to come near to you right now where you are. 
however animated you are with this subject or not animated you are, just right now, God, by his plan, had you here this morning. And this was the next topic in Corinthians. He wanted us to hear it. And I trust I spoke some things that God wanted you to hear. So can you just let the Holy Spirit find you right now and, and interact with where you are right now? Let's just bow our heads together and invite God's nearness into our own souls. Lord, I believe for some here this morning, who are just trying to find their way through life, navigating this maze that they find themselves in. A maze of thrills, rewards, difficulties, and sufferings. A maze of relationships that go right and that go wrong. A maze that feels comfortable some days and painful others. Lord, a maze that can feel awfully confusing in moments. So God, even though we haven't been able to explain everything in those categories, Lord, I, I pray for some shelter this morning for each of us to take shelter in the God who has ordered everything in his universe. To find comfort, Lord, in the places that even feel confusing, but to step outside of them and to know that from the very beginning, our lives and our universe has never been this random thing out of control. Nobody knew what's next. There is no plan. God, for some here this morning, they need to hear you say, there is a plan. And you're right in the middle of my plan. That pain, that suffering, those questions, that uncertainty, it's part of my plan. I'm working right now in your life to conform you into my image. There's a transformation going on in your soul and in who you are. To bring greater glory into your life and your life experience. I pray that whether that's a boy, girl, husband, wife, father, mother, single person, rich, poor, black, white, Lord, whatever issues float up in our hearts, God, would you speak to them as our creator? You are our creator. You manage every moment. There is order in our world. Uh, for some who are here this morning, they're, they're navigating the noise that's around us. What does it mean for me to be a boy or a girl, a man or a woman, a husband or a wife, a father or a mother? Lord, what, what do these things mean? And Lord, for some, that's become very confusing today and very hard to navigate and there are more choices today than there were when many of us were growing up. God, those choices haven't brought clarity. They seem to have brought more confusion into our age. So Lord, for, for some here, would you help some here 
to get a greater glimpse of the beauty of the God who creates male and female. The beauty, the wonder, the awe, the intrinsic design, the blessing of being male or being female. But all that you had in mind for that, Lord. And, and, and Lord, we know that's, that needs to get informed by your word. But God, would you just bring a sense of satisfaction for some and curiosity to love your purpose in making them exactly who you've made them to be and leading them into it further and further in a way that brings glory to your name. So God, thank you that difficult subjects are in your word to help us in difficult moments and days. And Lord, we look forward to engaging this further. But Lord, thank you just for these thoughts today, these realities, that we are not where we are by accident. We are each here by design for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. God bless you guys. Guys at home, we miss you. Love you. Look forward to seeing you soon.